This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript The Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS In-Depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by CodeShip.io. Don't you wish you could simply deploy your code every time your test passed? Wouldn't it be nice if it were tied into a nice continuous integration system? That's CodeShip. They run your code. If all your tests pass, they deploy your code automatically for fuss-free continuous delivery. Check them out at CodeShip.io. Continuous delivery made simple. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired to get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jabber. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to Widgmo.com and check them out. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 134 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Dave Smith. Hello world. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. And this week we have a special guest, Jason Chen. Hey guys. Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Sure. Jason, I guess I'm on the show because I'm the author of uh, Quill.js, which is a, a new open source library that is basically a rich text editor with the added benefit of it having an API. So the hope is that by providing an API that wasn't available before, uh, you can build a lot. You can Kind of op- it opens the door to a lot more possibilities of building richer editing applications. So by an API, do you mean that it's easy to extend? Uh, yeah, so there, it's easy to extend and customize. So if you, if you look at other editors, their APIs are, is actually just basically the DOM API. You can see just by looking at... So I guess one thing to clarify is like other editors do have an API, but it's not an API where you can edit contents of the editor. Um, all you can do is set, and the only kind of editing you can do is setting and retrieving the entire HTML. Oh, And then you kind of have to parse it yourself. Or if there are APIs, it is just basically the DOM API. You can add classes. And Yari Hat could do all of these things, so it's really just syntactic sugar. What Quill allows you to do is you can, if you go to quilljs.com and open the console, you can it exposes a global variable to the the editor on the page so you can try this out really fast where you can just insert text, uh, format text, and delete text arbitrarily in the contents of the editor. That's one example in extending it because when you try to extend an editor, for example, if you Google has, in Google Docs, there's this relatively new link editor where it actually helps you come up with the link, it like kind of provides a search result and as you're typing in content. So Basically, if you wanted to build something like that, you really couldn't with the other editors because uh, at the end of that, you want to apply a format to a small range of text that says, like, make this a link. And that's yeah. really not possible with other editors. And that's something, for example, that is possible with Quill. Cool. 
So is that the primary distinguishing feature between this and other editors? Because today I was thinking to myself when I got out of bed, man, the world really needs another rich text editor. I'm just yeah, so <laughs> Yeah, so the API is basically the big distinguisher between this. This is the big thing that it brings to the table that other editors don't have. It does all the other things that kind of need it to do, for example, working in all the different browsers. And the other thing that I'm not sure you can call this a feature or a distinguisher. It's just kind of something that Quill pays more attention to than other editors is that the HTML output that you get in Quill will be identical in each browser. Whereas in other editors, if you hit enter or various combinations of typing with backspace enters, at some point you, depending on which editor, which browser you're editing on, um, you'll get completely different HTML, which is a big problem if, you know, you have an application and your users are on different browsers, you could save a bunch of content that somebody wrote, and then when you, you oh, present yeah. it to some other content, to some other user, it'll actually look different. Yeah, it makes sense. Does it only support HTML as the output, or did you support other formats too? There are three, four outputs it supports, and actually I, I would have rather not supported HTML output. I think it's a, it's a very hard-to-deal-with format, and... Well, I guess I can talk about that a little bit, but I guess the the one it supports uh, outputting to plain text, so and that doesn't give you any of the formatting data. And then there's this other format that I guess I call it a delta, and if you print it out, it's meant to be very intuitive. It basically is an array of objects, and each object will tell you the string and then the formatting data. So, for example, it could be like an array, and the text is hello, and then there's an object that says bold true, which indicates that it's a bolded hello. And it's just an array of a bunch of these objects. And this type is, yeah, so this type is meant to be very intuitive for when you print it out, and it's compatible as well with this project called OT types, which is an operational transform type. So people can, so a lot of people, when they use this, they think about collaborative editing, and this was definitely kept in mind when uh, Quill was written. Oh, cool. Does Quill itself support any operation transforms, or is it just the display portion? Um, there are subtle ways that it does, or subtle places that it does have to. The one place where it does this, and there may be more as, as Quill grows, but right now, for example, there is when you give Quill a command to edit something, um, the contents of the editor may have changed, and there is a short delay on you getting that event. So, for example, if you, if you call insert an A on the second character, the user may have typed a character in the zeroth position, and you just didn't get that event yet. So in that case, Quill will actually do a, a transform, so you don't have to worry about that. But yeah, the, so Quill itself actually does do operational transform on its contents when it needs to. Okay. So I'm yeah. wondering, it looks like just on the Quill website that there's sort of the basic functionality you would expect. When you're talking about having the API, could I build something like a find and replace or things like that? Um, yeah, sure. In that case, for example, what you might do is just get the plain text output and then do a search and then figure out where the indexes are and then replace it. Yeah, so that's that's definitely very possible. That's interesting. Now, if I did that, would I be writing it mostly in JavaScript then? Yep, it'd be in JavaScript. Yep. So how are people using Quill today? So there's there's lots of different use cases. Some people are using it as 
they have a main editing application and they're using it where editing is core. Like, for example, a blog platform or... But a lot of people are using it uh, where editing is kind of... is not the main part of the app, but they it is important features such as, like, if they want to have comments on their product or there's this product is kind of an interviewing tool or it's a recruiting tool and uh, one part of it is they need to compose messages to keep everyone in the loop. So like the composer is and is using Quill. And that's kind of one of the motivators for building Quill was that a lot of applications could benefit from just we'll use, we'll have uh, textual editing, but you didn't want to have to spend a majority of your time supporting this because it's kind of just part of your app. And the existing tools were pretty lacking for that. So Quill can definitely just be a drop in editor that just does things well across browsers. And you can just focus on the main part of your product, which, for example, could be a candidate pipeline tool rather than focusing a lot on the the composing part of it. So I've never written a rich text editor, but I've always thought that they're kind of interesting in the sense that some of the ones that I use, you set up a text area or something like that. You give it a particular class and then some JavaScript comes through and replaces it with something that looks really pretty that has a bunch of buttons on it. Is that done by setting up another DOM element somewhere that's got editable property that you can go in and change stuff on? Or do you actually expand the text area in some way? So yeah, there's basically two ways to write a rich text editor. One way is to use this feature called content editable, which makes a DOM node editable. And like you can just go on any website and if you open up the inspector, it's kind of a fun thing to do and just add content editable. And then you can suddenly click around and start at like highlighting things on the site and deleting them. And so that's actually a feature available and supported uh, in all browsers. And so that's one way. The other way is kind of doing this yourself and you would have to render a cursor. And as people type, you have some sort of invisible text area behind it or a content editable dip behind it where you capture keystrokes and then you figure out the intent of the user and then you add that to the screen. And so as far as other editors go, pretty much everyone uses content editable except for Google Docs uses the DOM-based approach. And the problem with the DOM brace, well, I guess the problem with content editable is that it is, it's historically been very buggy and it still kind of is, especially between browsers. So you kind of have to, but then on the other hand, if you do the DOM-based approach, you kind of have to re-implement everything. And most people, when they start out, the and I was this way too, when the DOM-based approach seems very attractive because you kind of control everything. But I think people take for granted what an editor is expected to do and what it does do. And so, for example, if you just... There are so many kind of shortcuts, keyboard shortcuts, and also interactions that we use that we don't really think about, like double-clicking highlights the entire word, triple-clicking highlights the the entire uh, either line or paragraph. Just like if you hit shift up, it should highlight everything and then shift down. And especially if when you cross boundaries, when you go shifting in different directions. And so when you start to think about what your editor actually does that you use, or just observe someone that preferably a programmer as they're editing, you start to, the list of things that you have to support starts going really rapidly. And the problem with some of these things is with a non-monospace font, just implementing, for example, shift up, 
the highlight uh, up to the previous line. It's actually a really hard task with a non-monospace font with very little margin of error because if you're off by two pixels, if your cursor is kind of off by two pixels, that's noticeable to the average person. So Google Docs actually, like, in various, it still has this problem when you, like, zoom in and use different uh, languages that uh, you can notice that its cursor is off. So I guess you kind of have to pick your own which pill you want to swallow, like, implement a bunch of things or just kind of deal with a bunch of browser bugs. And so Quill kind of, I think really only Google seems to have the engineering strength to do the DOM-based approach, with the exception of if you were editing, making a code editor, then I think DOM-based approach is very viable because with the monospace font, then the problem is a lot easier. So Quill does use content editable, and it basically avoids the buggiest parts of it. It avoids, and yeah, I guess I, I don't really want to get into all the things that are broken, but I've looked at all the features of content editable and kind of avoid the ones that are the most problematic. Well, I'd be curious to know what those are, but I, I'm also wondering, so if you're doing content editable and you need to like add an image in or something, mm-hmm. do you just upload the image and then basically insert an image tag into the editable section where your cursor uh, is? Yeah, basically. So that's that's an example of something that you could use one of Content Editable's features to do that, um, and there's a command for adding an image. Quill instead will will not use it because of browser compatibilities. It'll just figure out where the cursor is, and it'll insert a DOM node in an image tag. Yep. And your earlier thing about, I guess right now, Quill is completely front-end, so the kind of uploading, it expects an image URL. So... Yeah, the the uploading part is not uh, something that Quill does right now because it's front-end only. So if I want to insert an image, what does it do instead then? You would basically have to... Either you implement some sort of some sort of backend that can accept images or you can use like Imgur or something else that has an API for this. But oh, basically, for all... At some point, the DOM expects a URL. And so that's the point where Quill can, can take a URL and then add the image. So does that mean that Quill does not support image resizing either? Uh, it doesn't do resizing either yet. Yeah, but that's something we do want to add. And yeah, that's something, I mean, you can do in HTML. So basically, if, if it's possible to do on the front end, then Quill can do it. But uh, it, it won't do, I don't see Quill doing any sort of like backend resizing, producing image files. Sure, sure. That sort of thing. But maybe cropping too? Yeah, there are things you can do to kind of support cropping, which basically uh, making negative offsets and stuff like that. Mm, Using CSS. Yeah, exactly. So what would you say has been the biggest challenge producing an editor like this? Um, I would say it's definitely testing. So like I say, the the editor has to work really well on on different browsers, and it's using kind of a feature that is known to be questionable on each browser. There has to be a very, very comprehensive test suite. The problem is, some of the, the best tools for this, for example, WebDriver, Selenium, they're known to have bugs and issues on content editable. So, and added to that, sometimes one of the problematic things that happens is when the user types for most notably like the backspace or enter keys and sort of modifier keys. And so those sort of things are only when you use some tools, you can't just use JavaScript testing and simulate keystrokes. You have to actually see what the browser does when you hit the enter key, for example. So some tools, for example, Selen- WebDriver 
WebDriver doesn't, on some systems, they only simulate the keys. And on some systems, it, it actually hits the keys natively. So it's either a simulated event or a native event. So basically, the tooling on for testing is pretty lacking for this sort of thing. And the requirement for testing is very high. So at the current time, there's a lot of manual testing that I have to do. But that's definitely been the biggest challenge in that it has to work really well for across a wide number of browsers. And it's kind of using a feature that no, is known to not work very well in across <laughs> a number of browsers. And then the tools for testing it aren't very good. So that kind of leads to a pretty difficult environment. Yeah, it's the perfect storm for <laughs> testing failure. Sounds yep. really hard. Have you looked into any other testing tools like image-based testing like Siculi? Uh No, I actually haven't. What is it called? It's called Siculi. S-I-K-U-L-I. I'm probably mispronouncing it, but it came out of MIT, and the idea is that it, it actually scans what it sees on your screen to try to find things to interact with and then send actual keystrokes to things and stuff like that. I don't know if it would work well or not, but... Yeah, it'd be, it's interesting. The key thing is if it uh, the keystrokes it sends has to be native. Uh, yeah, that's the big thing with WebDriver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it's native. Like you, you can use it on any app. It doesn't have to be a web browser. Okay, great. Yeah. Anyway, interesting. I'm going to go hijack a bank website with it now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I have to cool. check that out. Oh, that sounds really, really hard. <laughs> so, yeah. like, what are your plans long term to make that not a maintenance nightmare? Keep it working well, and you know. Yeah, so a lot of it actually, if you modularize it enough, only a small number of it has to be manually tested. For example, basically there's a keyboard module and then there's, or I guess there's a section of the code where basically if you assume that it reliably got keyboard events, then the rest of it could be tested with just JavaScript unit testing or just, it's, the problem is reduced to just JavaScript tests. Yeah. So, makes sense. um, yeah, basically, it tries to partition it as much as possible such that, like, only the keyboard events have to be tested by a real native events. And even though, so Selenium's web driver support is also very good on, uh, on Windows particularly. And the difference between Chrome on Windows and Chrome on Mac is not very large. So there's very yeah. little differences across browsers on different operating systems. So that's helpful in that, like, basically, if you run web driver, on Windows, on all the browsers on Windows, you can have a pretty high confidence that it'll probably work on Mac as well. Yeah, so the only really kind of problematic areas are... So right now, it basically, manual testing has to be done more on mobile browsers and also for, yeah, mostly mobile browsers. And then when you section off the keyboard events, sort of like, like most of the tests are, are actually not Selenium tests. There's a point where you can assume that if... There's a the Selenium test test the events, and then if you assume the events are all working, then the rest of it could be tested by JavaScript. So you mentioned that a lot of the manual testing has to happen on mobile. Mm-hmm. What, what are the major differences between the mobile browsers and the desktop browsers? Yeah, so basically, officially, Safari is supported because that's what... Uh, actually Safari and uh, Chrome on Android, because that's what is automated by Sauce Labs. But I do also kind of unofficially support Firefox on, on Android just because Firefox is pretty easy to debug and such with, and I have a Android. So there's basically the mobile Safari is different from desktop Safari. It has, has different behaviors. So yeah, you have to kind of treat it as a different browser and also kind of 
there's some very like non-obvious bugs that occur just because it's not a it's a touch device. So for example, um one funny bug was when you hover or something in the toolbar it kind of shows a blue color. When you on desktop when you click on it, then you move away, it won't turn blue anymore, but there's no there's no sort of move away in Safari or on a mobile device. So when you click something, the the hover actually just stays there forever or until you click on something else. So that's like kind of uh, an example of something where like I guess it makes sense once you realize it that's how it's coded, but something that's pretty non-obvious when you the difference between a tablet and a desktop. So when you set up Quill on your own website, looks like you just download it, you include it in wherever, the header or the footer or whatever you're going to do. And then I'm just looking to see so the rest of it is just it looks like you just create a series of DOM elements, so it's not even... I, I guess the difference is is that like with Tiny MCE or CK Editor, all you have to do is add a class to a, a div or something or to a text area, and it'll do all the rest. With this, it seems like you have to be a little bit more explicit. Is there like uh, a default setup? I'm just looking at your quick start. Uh, okay. Let me see what you are looking at. Is, uh, it, it says be... create the toolbar container and create the editor container. Yep. And so it's a little bit more involved than just add the class to the whatever, though you do that too. Yeah, I guess uh, it has a little bit of initial content. So if you just like had no content, then you didn't have to have the kind of the sections that has hello world and says some initial content there. You could just have a DOM node and just call, uh, say, new quill and point it to that uh, and give it the selector for that DOM node, and it'll make that DOM node editable. If you wanted to add your own toolbar, I guess uh, this may differ from what the other editors do, but basically, if you want a bold button, just have an element that has, have a button that has the bold class. That's how you remove or include or not include certain formats, is if you had a button for it or not. Is there a default set of things that go in the toolbar? So if I don't specify a toolbar? Uh, no, that could be the difference that you're referring to in that Quill kind of asks you where is the toolbar and and it'll look for buttons and add the ones, or it'll look for buttons and attach event listeners to them, to the relevant ones. There isn't like create, you can't tell Quill right now to just create a, a toolbar with a default set of formats, although that could be something that we add. Hmm. That is, uh, I guess the we made that decision to kind of make it more customizable. And I think... Well, I have yeah, to say that that is a whole lot easier a configuration for the toolbar than I've seen with some of the others. Because you have to go into some arcane config object and set some property. And if you misspell it, or if you do something funny with it, or if you write a function that's supposed to do this or that or the other, you know, with this is just, okay, this is what I want in there. And then it knows that class QL bold means if I click this, I want whatever's highlighted bolded. Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't even have to be in the first level. If you wanted to group your toolbars, the, I think we might have an example for that too. It's just add some, it'll just look for the QL bold class and then just add a listener to it. So yeah, it's very much with the ethos of make it as easy as possible for the user, but at the same time allow a lot of customizability. Yeah, so that's one way it does that. You can make the toolbar look however you want and Quill will just try to look for the classes or which buttons that you want, and it'll attach those unintrusively. One other thing I'm seeing is themes. Mm-hmm. Now, now, is that just CSS, or is there more to it than that? There is more to it, and that's something uh, that, honestly, we haven't 
we're kind of going in stages and themes isn't something that we've documented very much on how to do and how to create your own. Um, and that's something that we'll hopefully do soon. So one example of something where it's more than just CSS is you look at the multiple cursors example. Um, in that page, that's when you just add that module, the cursors have kind of a square flag with people's names in it. And if you look at the full example, the flag is, has rounded corners, has like a triangle. And in that case, there were some uh, HTML changes where you basically had to specify a different template for the cursor flag. And for the rounded corners, uh, you can make rounded corners just with CSS. But this is also centered in the middle and also has the triangular flag. So those sorts of things uses a different HTML for the flag template. So that's something that uh, you could specify in themes that isn't just CSS. The intent of themes is just allowing you to customize the look, the aesthetics of the editor. And that's kind of the distinction between modules. Modules kind of, it changes the functionality and themes changes the visuals, even though the visual sometimes may require changing HTML. Hmm. Yeah, but we focus more on, right now we've provided one theme that looks reasonable, and we're focusing a lot more on the functionality part first, but in the future uh, there should be more themes and a lot more documentation on how to make your own and uh, customize existing themes too. So one other thing I've seen, or I haven't seen, that is too much with these rich text editors is that sometimes I'm editing something, say, on a blog that has its own custom theme, and so mm-hmm. I want the HTML in my rich text editor to look like exactly what it's going to look like in the main HTML. Mm-hmm. Is there a way to do that? Or is that harder than I think? There isn't a way to do that. It's harder. I guess that means it's harder than... Yeah, Quill is very customizable. That's something that is very difficult to do for the user to kind of specify what kind of... So I guess, or what kind of HTML structure or even HTML tags to use. And I'll give you like one short example. That's even for choosing between what I guess the tag to use for a line. There's some people think you should use a paragraph tag. Some people think you should use a div tag. And even those two choices has a bunch of consequences that isn't quite obvious. So I guess currently, if you use divs, It'll paste a lot better into other editors, for example, Word and Google Docs. If you use a P tag, just because there's two, just because by default there's a margin, I guess I'm speculating on the reason right now, but uh, if you have two P tags and you paste it into Word, you'll get three lines um, instead of two. So that's something that is probably not expected and that you didn't think about or didn't know the consequences. And the other thing is, but divs is, I guess, semantically less correct than a p tag. And actually, content editable is a little bit better using a p tag. Yeah, so I guess the problem, I guess why it's a little bit harder, it's harder than people expect, is part of the job of the editor is to handle all the kind of cross-browser issues. And so the more control you have over the HTML, the more that's kind of expecting the user to know about. And then that's kind of inviting a lot more trouble than than one expects. I've been wondering, who's working on the project with you? So I guess I'm the only person that's mainly working on it. Uh, When it started, my co-founder was also helping me, but he's kind of doing something else now. And yeah, as far as like kind of core committer daily uh, writing code, it'd be, it's just me right now. Cool. So what prompted you to get started? 
Yeah, so I started a company about two, three years ago. It was called Stipey, S-T-Y-P-I, and it's actually short for simultaneous typist. So a lot of people wonder why it's just like a funny word, but there's actually meaning behind it. Anyways, it was a collaborative code editor, and at some point we kind of pivoted into we wanted to make it more general, not just editing code. And so we kind of expanded to editing rich text. And so that's kind of when I started looking for the right tool for the right job. And that's when I found out that kind of all these editors aren't actually as customizable as you expect them to be. You know, like a lot of them advertise like hundreds of API calls and then you realize all the calls are like basically dot API calls. And so there wasn't really anything that did what we wanted, which was collaborative co-authoring. And so that's why we built it for Stipey and we continue to build it for a while. We sold to Salesforce about two and a half years ago and we continued to work on it there. And after I left Salesforce, I kind of decided that I wanted to do this full time. So that's what I'm doing. And that's, I guess, how I came to realize that there was a problem and decided that I wanted to solve that problem. Super cool. Have you been surprised as you've gone along at anything in particular? Like, oh, this is a lot harder than I thought or easier than I thought or anything stood out? I think like a lot of engineers, I, I thought this was easier than it actually was. But that's okay. Like challenges are good. But uh, I think I tend to underestimate or I either overestimate my abilities or underestimate the challenge. But I've, I've been really surprised by how many... I guess I was surprised by the, the reaction to it and how, how positive it's been and how many people, or I guess both the positivity and volume of it. Because I, I knew that this was something that some number of people wanted because I wanted it and I wanted it before it was written and I wrote it because it didn't exist. So, but I was quite surprised by how many people uh, were interested in this. And now even, even people that want, so like I said, the kind of the core, the big thing it adds is the API, but a lot of people are using it just as a replacement for a CK editor in TinyMC and uh, where they have little or no intention to modify the default behavior. So that's been surprising. And I don't know if it's because it's kind of a new thing or they, it is a lot more lightweight. And I guess I would consider them kind of equal. And I'm not sure why they're exactly choosing Quill over the other editors other than having a smaller code footprint. But I've been pleasantly surprised by the adoption. So does it have any dependencies? Like jQuery? It does not depend on jQuery. Yeah, that's that's one of the things. It does worry about code footprint, and uh, if people didn't care as much, uh, it probably would use jQuery, but uh, we try to keep the code base really small, so um, it doesn't rely on jQuery. The, basically, the two libraries that it uses is this uh, event emitter library, and it also uses Lodash, and it uses a custom build of Lodash, so just the functions that I like, or that it uses. And... I think those two are basically tools, those two libraries, I would need the functionality anyways. And if I would have written, if I didn't use those, what I would write would probably be basically the same, except not work as well. So yeah, it does use uh, Lodash and uh, this event emitter library, event emitter 2, I think that's what it's called. But yeah, certainly we do, like, it's a front-end tool, so it doesn't need to be very lightweight, and it's only a little bit more than 100k minified, so that'd be nice to keep it that size. All right, well, I guess the only other question that I have is, if I put this into a web form that I was using, and 
I decided that I needed to save the contents back to my back end, would it just grab the contents out of the container div that you're using that's editable and then just slurp that into the what it's submitting back to the server? Is that effectively how it works? No, unfortunately not, because it's a div and divs aren't a form field. There is something, you, if you want to do this, you basically have to grab the content and either fill in a form field uh-huh. um, or do an Ajax post right now. There's definitely something that's a pretty common use case, so I'm definitely going to want to write a guide or make this easier. There could be just like a module that mirrors the contents of the editor in like a hidden form field or something, or just waits for a list or a submit and then fills it in then or something like that. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the right best implementation is, but there's some uh, extra step that you have to do right now just because mm-hmm. a div is not submittable by default. Right. What I meant was, yeah, that you would have yep. to essentially grab the HTML contents of that div and put them into a form field that gets submitted with the rest of your form. Yep, that's correct. All right. Well, I don't think I have any other questions, so let's go ahead and do some picks. All right. Dave, do you want to start us off with some picks? You betcha. I have two picks for you today, and um, they are two that maybe our listeners have already heard of. Let's find out. The first one is, I know most people have heard of material design that was introduced from Google this year, but um, maybe you don't know that there's a really cool Angular project called Angular Material, which is a set of directives that you can use in your Angular app that implement the material design spec. And some of them are really cool. For example, there's a subheader, which gives you that scrolling effect where you have lists of items with categories and the little headers scroll up and they lock at the top of the viewport as you scroll out the previous one, um, which is pretty cool. And I understand that they are working very hard to make sure that they have accessibility built in so that you can help users with disabilities, visual or hearing impairments, which is really cool. My other pick is also probably one that many people know about, but I wanted to mention it because it is, to this day, still probably my favorite source of technology news, and that is Hacker News, which is news.ycombinator.com. And I'm always pleased when I open that up. I almost always find something really interesting to read, and the content is really good. I've been really pleased with it. So those are my picks. Awesome. I've got a couple of picks. The first one is something I've been working on. It's uh, JS Remote Cough. The idea is is that you set your DVR to record your favorite TV shows, and then you watch talks from JavaScript people instead in the evening. It's going to be the first two weeks in February, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Um, I'm also offering tickets for users groups. So if you run a users group or are interested in, you know, in having an event for your users group, then uh, this is a good way to go. Anyway, you can find it at jsremoteconf.com, and I'm also opening up a call for proposals. So if you want to speak, I would be interested to see what you want to speak about. Jason, what are your picks? I have three picks. They're kind of very different from each other. So one of them is basically uh, this podcast that I listen to all the time. I love history, so it's called Hardcore History. I don't know if you guys have Yeah, I love that one. Yeah, so this one pick uh, goes for probably one of the best podcasts that I've heard on history for for sure Um, and goes really in depth in like a lot of historical events kind of makes me mad like some of the the parts of history that I was never taught yeah me too (laughs) yeah totally yeah that's only getting worse hashtag politics anyway what's your favorite series so far so I really like the the world war one me too. One and I don't think he did the last one yet, so it's it's kind of uh, nope, not yet. I'm wondering. Well, I know how everything ends, but uh, I wonder how he presents it. 
Um, <laughs> Spoiler. So, yeah. So that's that's one uh, not programming related at all. Uh, another one is uh, there's this tool called Ngrok that I use a lot, and it's basically uh, it exposes your local host publicly on the internet. So this is actually this is how I do a lot of tests on Quill. Is that I'm writing some code on my computer and I want to test it out on my mobile devices. I'll just uh, use Ngrok to expose my local host, and then I can use my iPad and visit my local host essentially and play around with it. And this will work too with my virtual machines. Like, so I have a bunch of virtual machines to test on IE, and it just makes it really easy to test. Some of it, it makes it easier to test. You can configure your virtual machines to like use your local host and map IPs and etc. But it's just like a really hard way. Uh, with ngrok, you just type a command and then you can visit your local host. So that's something that's helped a lot in my dev workflow for sure. I'll have to check that out. I've been using a DynDNS URL and then just have my router pass through specific types of traffic yeah. to my local host. And it wasn't that hard to set up, but having something that's maybe a little more automatic sounds good. Yeah, it seems cool. Yeah, and then my last pick is this blog post that I really like. But it's basically about how to, one of the big questions is like how to, what do you choose to build when, when you're working on a project? What, like what feature do you choose to build or what issue do you use to address? And uh, it, it has a really interesting way of thinking about the problem where it kind of categorizes things into it either is a, is a game changer. Well, yeah, a game changer, a showstopper, or a distraction. And basically, I, I really enjoy the post, and I think it's a really interesting way to think about uh, prioritize things. And uh, it's been helpful for me as I not just building Quill, but other things. So that is my, one of my picks. Very cool. All right. Well, I think we're pretty much done. Thanks for coming, Jason. It was fun to talk, and hopefully folks check out Quill or get inspired to do something similar. I know that there are a lot of possibilities out there with editing dom directly the way that you do with the text editors and i think there are some cool possibilities so yeah so we'll wrap it up we'll catch you all next week this episode is sponsored by mad glory you've been building software for a long time and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming work piles up hiring sucks and it's hard to get projects out the door check out mad glory they're a small shop with experience shipping big products they're smart dedicated We'll augment your team and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests.